Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tech Analyst Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, good to hear from you again. Yeah, good to good to talk to you again. It's uh, I prefer Hawaii, but uh, doing it out of Austin uh, is just fine. Yeah, not quite the same podcasting environment that we had previously. Uh, but it has been it's been a little while. We wanted to talk about some of the comings and goings in the in the technical field here uh, as we get close to Christmas holiday break, as we get close to CES, there is no shortage of topics for us to really get to. Let's, um, let's touch on something from Synaptics, right? Synaptics announced an under-screen fingerprint sensor, which uh, I, I think is both technically impressive, but also uh, based on the you know, the environment that Apple had created with its face ID and removal of touch ID from the iPhone 10 is actually maybe more topical than it would have been otherwise, right? It is for sure. And particularly when we see a lot of vendors, I think like Samsung, bending over backwards to add an infinity display and then putting a, a fingerprint sensor right next to the, the phone camera, which I know on my, my Note 8 and my S8 Plus, I'm constantly putting my finger... Uh, on the lens. So uh, this is, I think, welcome to uh, a lot of people as a, as a good alternative to something like Face ID or somebody else's uh, 3D ident- identification. Yeah, from, from a technical standpoint, it, it's actually impressive how it works, right? So it's actually a sensor that is underneath the OLED matrix. So the processor that it has, the processing that has to occur um, actually has to do some like noise reduction and removal uh, in order to to get the fingerprint, but they still claim that it's as secure as a standard fingerprint sensor. Um, and, you know, if you look through some of the information they provided, you know, they claim 0.7 seconds activation time compared to about one, one and a half seconds for Face ID, which I find, you know, one and a half second is probably um, a, a best case scenario for the technology on the phone as far as I've used it. Um, and I, you know, all the rumors right before the iPhone release was that this was something that Apple was trying to do for the iPhone 10, and they just couldn't get the technology working um, reliably enough or cost-effectively enough to really include, right? So I don't know if Synaptics is generally somebody who works with Apple and these types of tech or if this is something that will be basically provided for Android devices, Um but it, but it's clear now that this this probably, if it works as well as Synaptics claims, which I think you actually got some demo time with it or got to see it in person, it, it is is really like the optimal choice of uh, how people are wanting to design phones and how people want to interact with those phones. I think if Apple had their druthers, they would have had a had an under display fingerprint reader like this, and then a world facing AR camera. There seems to be a whole lot more utility on it. I mean, I, I thought Animojis were cool for about one day afterwards, and I, I'm not aware. I, I haven't received one since the week the phone Same launched. Here. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing, again, I'm impressed with the technology of it. It's actually taking a photograph uh, of, of your fingerprint, and there are ways that you can have – you can take somewhat of a 3D photograph and – I even though I haven't 
specifically done security testing on it myself, uh, I'm sure a ton of people have and a ton of people will. Because a company's, company like uh, Synaptics just can't put something out there where their bread and butter is essentially uh, UX and, and security and put out something that just, just doesn't work. And I did get time. The only thing I can testify to is, is to a pre-production version of a Vivo uh, phone. Mm. And it operated uh, operated very fast, a lot faster than I thought it would. And I know that can go both ways when it goes to production. It can be slower. It could be faster. I was told... Uh, at the table that it, it would be faster than this so i was i was impressed yeah i i i'm looking forward to getting my hands on with that at ces and and really seeing how it how it works one of the other big things that we saw launched this past week was uh kind of sur- it was a surprise to me at least the nvidia titan v which is a they call it a consumer graphics card, but I almost think the nomenclature is odd at this point, right? So it's a $3,000 add-in card that has display outputs, and that's important because it's the first time we have seen a uh, Volta-based GPU ship with display outputs, meaning you could install it in a standard PC if you wanted to and, and either game with it or do machine learning or do nothing with it, I guess. Um, but this this kind of marks even at three thousand dollars the lowest point of entry for Nvidia into its Volta architecture, um, and I also kind of found it interesting they used the Titan brand. However, they removed the GeForce brand for it. So all the previous Titan cards were were called Nvidia GeForce GTX Titan XP or whatever have you. This one is simply Nvidia Titan V. I think an indicator of what their true you know target audiences for this product right yeah i think this is a hundred percent about machine learning and getting it into more people's hands because when you you buy a v100 you really have to have a server storage and then connect it up to a network to get to get the most out of it Mm -hmm. and and this to me is for you know research scientists one or two that can get up to speed literally just go out and buy the card and slap it into PCIe 3 slot with much po- enough power and you're good to go. And, and I think the price also dictates that this is a machine learning card and, and not the best that we're going to see from from NVIDIA related to gaming. Because if you look at the $3,000, it you know it is higher than any other gaming card out there. Mm-hmm. But comparing it to what you could do in machine learning, it's well worth that three thousand dollars. Yeah, I think. I'm, yeah, I'm urging everybody to really watch anything that they're walking away with related to something gaming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we actually we got what I bought one of these cars, and we went we put it through some gaming tests, but then we also put it through some compute tests. So it's interesting in that it is actually the fastest gaming card we've ever tested. But in terms of the ratio of performance per dollar, it doesn't make sense at a $3,000 price point, which is fair, again, because of what NVIDIA has stated this was supposed to be. And in, in the compute side, it did fantastically well, uh, especially anything that utilized double precision compute, which is uh, one of the areas where uh, the Volta architecture really shines. 
it was you know anywhere from 10 to 14x faster than the previous Titan card, which is based more on a consumer GPU and less on a on a compute or machine learning based GPU. And it was even uh, compared to like the Vega Frontier Edition, Vega 64, like AMD's kind of best. Uh, it was you know anywhere from four to six times as fast in those double precision workloads. It was a, it was an impressive machine, and we're actually doing some more testing with it this week from a specifically on a machine learning thing, trying to utilize the tensor cores that are integrated into that architecture and see what uh, performance and efficiency gains it might offer there. Yeah, I was just about to say I can't wait to see the half floats to see what it uh, to see yeah. how it does and because I don't think the full floats are even using the uh, tensor cores at all. They're not. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So yeah, like even even the double precision, which is FP64, you've got your single precision FP32, and then the half precision is the FP16, which is where on the Volta, as long as the application and and uh, APIs are are integrated correctly, that's where it utilizes the tensor core functionality. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's talk about Tesla for a second. Uh, at T-minus 12 days, I believe, until they had initially promised their first coast-to-coast drive by the end of 2017. Um, I, do you think they're going to make it? I just don't see them doing that. But every time <laughs> I bet against uh, Tesla, they, they blow me away. And I, I remember the announcement. Uh, Elon Musk w- was on a call basically saying, you know, from this day forward – Every one of our cars' hardware will be capable of of doing full level five uh, in, in, within a couple years of a software upgrade. And then a few months later, this this promise came out, and I think it blew blew everybody away again mm-hmm. that in disbelief rather than anything else. Yeah, so I, I think it's probably unlikely that they hit that in this twelve day mark. If we haven't seen any kind of um, you know, it's also one of those things that maybe they've maybe they've made the attempt ten times and it's failed, and they're not going to promote that, right? It's something that you would never we won't we won't know about until they tell us it's completed and they release some video or some proof that it has happened, right? So um, interesting, nonetheless. You know, to keep track of that as as somebody who is incredibly interested in the in the AI side and autonomous driving side of that. Um, I want to see. I want to see them succeed in that, which actually kind of rolls into the next news story. Where at a was it at a holiday party or some kind of event <laughs> where Elon just kind of very very nonchalantly confirmed that oh, of course we're building our own chips for AI, which oh, I think many it, people and expected. It's gonna be, and it's going to be the best. Don't forget about that. Sure, sure. But of I think <laughs> we all kind of assumed this was the case when you hire Jim Keller. Right, and you hire the types of engineers that they have hired, but we had never actually heard it confirmed until until this point. That's right, and there was also a bit of rumor and speculation uh, the same day as the Global Foundries uh, Analyst Conference, where oh, I don't right. even think the word I was actually there, and Sanjay didn't actually use the name Tesla and combine it uh, with that, but somehow that created a whole. Uh, rumor mill where CNBC was confirmed by somebody, and I'm guessing Tesla uh, put that in there to be able to to create some some interest around it, and it makes sense to me, right? I mean, it it the capabilities of the fab and the uh, let's say you get a 20% gain out of doing it yourself. If you can do that in volume, it's going to pay for it. The tools are getting better. The ability to do your own homegrown chips uh, isn't cheap, and I think 
Apple, if anybody, uh, led the way that showed that a hardware OEM can go down to the chip level and be successful. Yeah. Now, do you think it is going to be a completely custom implementation? You know, part of that rumor that came out from um, the Global Foundries Tech Day was really about them utilizing AMD hardware. Uh, for their chip. Do you still think that's something that they would do? Did you ever do think that? Or, or do you think they're going to go go their own road? If they're smart, first out will be something that they align with somebody who does custom processors like AMD built in a fab. I mean, I, I have never heard anybody coming out of the gates the first time and being able to do something credible. You know, typically we never hear the first generation of a chip there were some ARM server people who were in the market but never in the market. But mm-hmm. but because their offering wasn't credible, they ended up bailing on it. And, and I think Tesla should partner with somebody on custom silicon. And I would say AMD is likely a the, one, you know, the premier partner, if not one of the premier partners, who could successfully do this on time given all the work that they do for – uh, Microsoft, uh, Sony, and gosh, even um, even working with Intel now. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's really interesting that that they would go down that path, but also I, I agree with you that it's you know you're you're putting this chip in cars. This is not something you can screw up, right? Um, this especially if you're you're going to maintain those claims of level five autonomy for all hardware shipping from this day forward so uh it's it's worth keeping an eye on yeah well and what i'm thinking about too is what does it mean for some of the biggest players so nvidia clearly owns uh, next generation training for i'll call cloud native companies and they're working on inference but if somebody like amd would do it what could they leverage using vega architecture or for even that matter I don't even think AMD is wedded to using their own graphics or maybe putting an FPGA in there for sure. inference. Because primarily, AI in a car is inference, not training. Correct. Yeah. And the compute requirements for inference versus training are, are very different. Um, actually, just had an interesting call with Micron talking about some of the memory requirement differences uh, between training and inference workloads. So interesting to go down that route. So hopefully now it's been confirmed, you know, they'll probably have to address those questions at next earnings calls and stuff. Uh, so I'll be curious to see what uh, what that community does with that. Yeah, either that or one expert way of negotiating a contract with That's true. somebody else. <laughs> oh, I just casually mentioned this at a party. So now we're doing it, right? Good. Exactly. Uh, Google is killing Tango. The uh, What I would consider... The widely or what would be widely considered the the first kind of AR platform in the modern age, right? Project Tango devices. They originally partnered with Nvidia. Um, ended up integrating it onto some Snapdragon phones as well. Partnered with Lenovo, I believe, was the That's first right. phone vendor to do it. Um, but they've kind of officially killed off that project. What do you think that means for AR and or Google because of it? So I think it's a little bit of a risky venture um, in in that Google must believe that using two regular cameras uh, or one regular camera uh, to do 3D vision is, is the way to go. I certainly think that's the way to go in the future because if you put 
those cameras far enough apart and you have enough compute, you don't need a 3D camera. Uh, but I haven't seen, uh, you know, I, I, the only thing that I've seen from Google so far is, is, is them using one camera on the Pixel XL2 uh, to do uh, some some special uh, camera functions, and, mm-hmm. and that has not been nearly as good as what Apple has been able to do with two cameras. So now, if their if their vision is going very quickly from using a 3D camera to 2D camera to one camera, uh, call me a skeptic. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Now, I will say, I had gone through several project tango kind of demos uh when i was at mobile world congress two years ago lenovo brought us out to a museum where we got to use a project tango device to you know guide us on a tour through the museum and everything and it and it, and it worked but it wasn't a, a perfect experience right and i feel like if you look at something like what apple has done with ar kit um you know on its devices without using any of that specialized hardware, depth sensing cameras, um, even that we've hit those, that same quality level or even beyond it. Right. Like you, you were playing with those, uh, those star Wars stickers, right. On the, on the pixel phone. Did, how, what was your experience with that? And that's only using a single camera. Yeah. So that was actually Onshul, but oh, okay. I've done enough. I've done enough of these Snapchat, uh, things that, that I think look really, really interesting. I guess, when it comes to doing more far field stuff, uh, you know, how can my couch fit in this space or this TV fit uh, on this wall? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I the technology is going to get there. I'm just surprised that Google is going that that quickly. Uh, so far, based on on what I've seen, even in demos and what I've seen from their own te- on their own phone, which yeah, uh, even trying to do. Um, uh, blurred background has been difficult for them you know normally i would say that uh well clearly this is just indicative of the company you know realizing the benefits of its you know vr ar programs with uh uh you know vr headsets and stuff like that and that they're taking advantage of it. but i actually don't believe you know google of all companies oddly seem to have these divisions that don't communicate don't seem to share data as well as they should um so I'm not really I don't really know what what to make of the of the Tango shift otherwise but yeah I mean Apple started without having a specialized uh 3D camera so I, I think they may have seen all of the progress that Apple was making without a specialized 3D camera even though they put it on a face a face viewing one they're doing a heck of a lot of apps on the standard with with two with two cameras on the mm-hmm. world facing right yeah, we'll see more as uh, as the AR kind of battle continues on the on the mobile devices. Whether or not this this lack of Tango really affects Google, I, I don't see it. I don't see it doing anything. I don't think the implementation or the integration was really um, uh, deep enough into enough devices to really have an impact on the market. Anyway, so uh, Amazon. The, the the kind of battle they've had, this kind of consumer-facing battle uh, between Amazon and Google and Apple, looks like it might be thawing out some as Amazon is going to start selling the Chromecast and the Apple TV on its store, which sounds crazy that that's even a storyline that we talk about, but it's something that's been, been an issue for a long time. It is. This is classic big company getting into pissing matches with each other, and I think 
cooler heads prevailed because there there would be nothing um, better for somebody in antitrust to view something like this on everybody's side and, and view it as leveraging your monopolistic power here. Now, we are dealing with Apple, Google, and Amazon, three titans in the industry, so it might be tough, but um, I, I think cooler heads prevailed. They looked, they looked uh, down the road and, and saw the way that people could uh, perceive this and, and, and went uh, from there. Now, what we haven't seen is getting YouTube on, on Amazon's Alexa devices again because mm. that's been turned off. Yeah, I, I, I just I don't. We've we talked about this once before. I don't understand what the purpose of of that, other than a negotiating point, would be. Right? Like, is there is there any? There's no technical reason. There's no. Um, I don't even see like a consumer facing business decision that on how that would make sense. Like, you're not forcing them into one of your own um, platforms or something like that. Nobody's going to suddenly stop using YouTube because an Echo device didn't include it anymore. Uh, the only thing I can see this from uh, on an Echo device is potential that Amazon would layer in ads on top of Google's experience. That when you take the feed, does not include ads. Mm. And I could see them wanting to negotiate a rev share deal. Uh, who can use who can use that content to make to make money on? And that's right. what I think this always comes down to is is who who is going to make the money. So I think they're they're looking down the pike and seeing uh, a, a potential. And I, I fully believe that Amazon is going to create an ad network uh, to rival Google's. I think they're the only company who could potentially do that. And and uh, Google's looking forward and saying, hey, wait a second. We made the investment here. Uh, we're putting the dollars in. Therefore, we need to make uh, the advertising money off of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, either way, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just glad that when my mom asks me where to buy these types of devices at, I can, again, just point her to the same place that I've been pointing her at for, for most things. Uh, maybe our last story for this week, um, Samsung has made a huge step in kind of becoming the dominant DRAM, NAND, kind of semiconductor provider in the world by announcing that they were going to more than double their uh, investment in production facilities in 2018, up to $26 billion, which I love uh, the stat that's in the ZDNet story um, that says their next competitor, Intel, is only planning $12 billion (laughs) for this year. So more than double of the next, uh, next best competitor. Um, what do you make of, of of Samsung's move here? Is this is this the right bet to make uh, at this point in consumer, you know, in, in processing? This is the classic move that Intel would have made a decade ago, and they did make right. They were spending more than everybody, and and Intel's you know my take is that hey, even if we don't have the best design, we're going to have more manufacturing muscle to take you out, and we can do it uh, at a much much lower cost. And that's exactly the page that, that the, the play that Samsung is running here, which is is we will out uh, maneuver you, and it's impressive. I mean, I, I I almost can't believe the numbers here. And the other thing it indicates to me is uh, 
for some type of third-party manufacturing, okay, an independent fab. I know they announced that they were going to be uh, getting into the foundry business, but you know, so far it's only been it's only been uh, primarily their silicon. You know, they run they ran Apple for a while. But I think they're trying to actually become a fab. I I I can't imagine that they can invest an incremental ten billion dollars just just for memory and storage. Yeah, I, I think this. I think you're right. I think this is both for how do they become the dominant foundry for microprocessors, and then how do they um, help. You know, there's this. There's when you're when you're the company that makes memory. You make Samsung produces, I think, fifty percent of the uh, memory that exists in the world. Uh, that price is continuing to increase uh, because of shortages of it. So now you have to balance: Do you want to make more so that the prices are reduced, or do you want to like maintain the level you're at because hey, prices are great and margins are, are fantastic. Um, for them, I think this move of investing in production facility shows that not only do they want to make a lot of money, they want to be the biggest overall their competitors by a significant margin, right? Over, you know, SK Hynix and anybody else um, that, that wants to produce memory. Samsung's going to have the huge edge in that market for the foreseeable future if this, you know, CapEx investment goes as they've, they've stated it would in their, in their earnings. And part of these announcements are also to send a message to their competitors and the boards of directors of their competitors that say, you're going to have to compete with this if you want to have a viable business in, in the future. And we we're talking about all this upfront CapEx. It's hard for other companies uh, to even get that amount of money. And, yeah. and yeah. I really believe that that Samsung's looking at TSMC and looking how much look at looking at uh, how much they're worth as a company, and then comparing it to their own company and thinking, you know, we're just as good. We can actually do this. And in fact, uh, for a for a while there, they had the best process uh, that was out there, mm-hmm. and, and and therefore I think this is also about uh, being a foundry. So I I think sure the the memory and storage guys. Uh, like LG and Toshiba, I think they're they're likely at risk, but also people like uh, TSMC. Do you do you see any of these competitors like TSMC or Intel on that foundry side seeing this as a as a point where they need to make additional investments? Like either they have to either play catch up or admit that they're going to fall behind in 2018. So I think they're going to have to when they look when they look at just. How much capacity is out there? And Intel, by the way, is sitting on unused capacity uh, with with 10, 10 nanometer. They've had an empty empty plant on the West Coast for actually uh, a couple years, and it's really Intel's decision if they wanted to uh, ramp that up. But I I do think that from a foundry perspective, people are going to ask themselves: Do we really want to get into this? And can can we actually compete uh, where where somebody is? doubling, tripling, quadrupling their investment. So whether it's it's Intel, TSMC, Global Foundries, uh, I'm sure everybody is thinking about how they how they play this. I think if you're one of these, you know, 
semiconductor companies that is doesn't own a fab, if you're Qualcomm, you love to see this, right? Because now your biggest partner in the foundry space is making more investments. You assume that's going to be for better process technology, get, helping you get an advantage over you know Intel or Apple or whoever it may be in that space that you know, anybody that's not going to be willing to utilize the same Samsung uh, process tech. I think it is for sure. I mean, right now we're seeing already uh, what a lack of supply does to memory and storage, and uh, prices have doubled, if not tripled, in in certain areas. And what happens is then everybody builds a, a ton of fabs, and then the prices go down. Now, if only one person does this, it drives costs uh, down and makes everybody else uncompetitive. But to your, right. to your point on on the people who are fabulous, it, it's really a boon for them. It's just more competition. And now you have TSMC performing well. You have Samsung making big investments. And then you have global foundries who's performing the best I've ever seen them perform mm-hmm. in probably 10 years is, is doing uh, pretty well. Yeah. And I think that's just good for – Good for the industry as a whole. Yeah. I know there are some people that, that uh, are, are very down on where Intel stands from a process technology standpoint. I don't share that mindset necessarily, um, but I could see how this announcement from Samsung puts even more pressure on Intel to prove that they are still uh, the leader or among the leaders in that field. Yeah, so you know, I've been watching Intel, I think, for 25 years now, and while I do believe the gap is narrowing, I would like to see exactly what's going on with 10 uh, nanometer. I know early on it was more of an economic decision to stick with uh, 14 nanometer and then yep. improve upon 14 nanometer because yep. sometimes the spreadsheets don't don't make sense because it's not only Putting the investment in uh, to get 10 nanometer working, it's also filling your entire fab with billions of dollars worth of equipment to do that. Which, by the way, uh, Intel would have to co-invent because nobody else was was doing this at the time. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Interesting stuff. Um, I think that's gonna that's gonna wrap up the episode for us here. I know we have uh, we've got a little bit of a break as we come up to the holiday and then CES coming coming before us. I think we'll have a specific episode where we talk about maybe some of our thoughts and ideas for what interesting things we may or may not see at CES this year. We'll probably record an episode from there as well. Um, I guess that's it. Any any final thoughts for anything on anything, Patrick? Uh, other than I'm looking forward to CES, uh, some some big announcements uh, to be made uh, for sure. So I think uh, we're going to have uh, a lot to talk about here, and maybe even depending on the day, uh, some last minute uh, holiday holiday uh, uh, present choices if we do it before the, uh, Christmas. Nice, nice. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find uh, the RSS files, links to iTunes and Google Play Store, all those outlets where you can subscribe to the show and make sure you get automatic downloads of each episode at thetechanalysts.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.